All right. <laughs> it should be live now. Um, don't mind my cat. She, uh, hopefully she'll go away <laughs> in a second. Hey, this is the uh, Friday, every other Friday, usually Q&A. I'm Mike Winger, and I'm here to try, to try to answer your questions as biblically as I'm able to. If nothing else, I just want to help you learn to think biblically about things. Sorry, my cat's attracting me um, and probably you as well. But I will just go to the first question for today. And uh, I'm just going to leave her there because I think it's funny. Question one comes from Jessica Johnson, who asks, My husband believes that faith comes about by family tradition and that someone's faith is just an expression of what their family has taught them rather than actual faith in God. That's interesting. Um, this is actually... a <laughs> This is an official... Okay, all right, we have to, we'll have to move the cat. She's happy to be there. She's purring and everything, but... Um, this is actually an official logical fallacy or formal logical fallacy. So when when we say something's a logical fallacy, what we what we mean by that... I mean, most, most of you guys know, but for anybody who's wondering, it means, hey, that doesn't work. Like, this argument fails because it, it involves, it relies on something that's just not a good way of finding truth. And so the, the logical fallacy is called the genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy is basically when you say uh, your, your belief or your idea, the thing you're saying is wrong because of where it came from or because of how you got, how you sourced it, like where it, where it, um, basically where it came from. So this genetic fallacy backfires for a number of reasons. And you can see why, um, uh, if it was true that you only believe what you believe because of where you were born, or who your parents are, or your cultural environment, and that that's actually a good argument against Christianity, it backfires because it's a good argument against everything. For instance, the person who believes that you only believe in Christianity because of who your parents were, or where you were born, or your culture, they only, if they're right about that, then they only believe in rejecting Christianity. They only do this because of where they were born because of their cultural background. And then you'll, you'll, you can push even further and say, ah, oh, well, the only reason they believe that you believe because of where you were born is because of where they were born. And so that even, even their belief in the legitimacy of the, of the genetic fallacy here is itself going to fall to the genetic fallacy. So this is a problem. Um, and you might say, but Mike, what if they're just agnostic? Because sometimes agnostics will feel like they're being the most unbiased people in the room because they go, well, I don't know. I'm just saying I'm not convinced by your beliefs. But you could simply say they're only agnostic because of the circumstances of their birth, where they were born. This would potentially be a good argument, um, Jessica, if somebody was to come to you and say, hey, why do you believe Christianity is true? And you said, I believe it's true because my parents told me and I rely on them to simply tell me true things. And that, that that's it. The only reason I believe is because they, they told me. Then it could be a, a good argument if, in addition to saying you only believe because of your parents, they also gave you reasons to think your parents were not right. So you would still need to give reasons and arguments beyond just saying, if it came from your parents, you know, don't believe it. That, that would be weird. Um... So here, this brings up a really good question for you to ask yourself, Jessica, and for everybody out there to be thinking about as a Christian, right? And for non-believers too, because you have something you don't believe and you may have to have a reason for that, why you reject a belief. You actually have to have a reason for that, that at least you should, I think, to be rational. So why do you believe in God? 
Or why do you not believe in God? Like, what are your actual reasons for belief in God? And so none of those reasons in my mind are because my parents told me so. At least, uh, now, it may be the case that for you, you believe because your parents told you so. That may also be true that your parents were right. But we have other reasons we can add to that as well. For instance, God is the best explanation for why there's something rather than nothing in the universe. The, the fact that there even is a universe. There's just something rather than nothing. This is not a throwaway question. This is a deep and important philosophical question. It's sort of an unavoidable question unless you... Uh, act like, say, Richard Dawkins, who's like, that's a dumb question to ask. <laughs> and, um, no, it's not a dumb question. It's actually a really important fundamental philosophical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? God is the best explanation for that. Other explanations fall short. Um, another reason to believe in God is God is the best explanation for there being a first cause or any number of different what, what are called contingency arguments where you look at things in the world and you go, hey, I'm contingent upon other things, parents, space, time, matter, um, cause and effect, all these different things have to be in place for me to exist. So I'm, I'm a contingent being. And if you trace back in time, you get to the thing that was not contingent, the, the first cause, the thing that all other things rely upon. Um, so God is the best explanation for that because God is the type of thing that would fit the bill there, right? If you just say, well, what about a, 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 a blue elephant? A, a magical blue elephant is the non-contingent being. They're like, well, that's fine. Except why did you, why did you get magical and blue an elephant out of that? Those are extra claims. I'm saying this because this is like flying spaghetti monster type of atheism response. Um, what they've done is they've added a bunch of extra baggage that the contingency argument doesn't bring with it when you when you work it out. What you would have. If you work back this, like, what explains all other things, you'd have something that's self-existent, right? But you wouldn't have it being blue. <laughs> you wouldn't have it being an elephant. You wouldn't have those things going on. So another reason to believe in God, I'm just going to throw out a few different ones here real quickly. Uh, God is the best explanation for the incredible design that we see in biology, as well as the design we have in the universe itself, like the laws of physics, mathematics, all this sort of thing. God is the best explanation for that. Those are two very different lines of argument, the biological design and then the universe itself design. I think the one people are more familiar with is the biology one. The one that they're less familiar with is the design that is in within the very laws of physics and, and the constants and quantities in the universe. And you guys can check that out. Uh, look up the teleological argument, T-E-L, teleological. You could check that out. That's a very interesting argument for God's existence. You could argue that God is the best explanation for the soul. The fact that humans are more than just meat robots. We actually have thoughts. We actually have um, not just not just action and reaction. No, we have, I have thoughts. I carry ideas and beliefs and intentionality and will and consciousness of my own person and being. This does not arise from a merely, merely materialistic Explanation, at least that doesn't seem like a very good explanation for the um, the human soul, right? I, I I know that I am a soul. I, maybe you don't know much about me, but you know that you're a soul. How could you deny that? And so God's the best explanation for that because He would ground the existence of the human personhood and souls more so than uh, anything else. I think. Also, God's the best explanation for moral realism. The fact that morality is real, that it really is wrong to, say, torture children for fun, that would be an evil and horrible thing. It's not just something that's not conducive to my 
goals to have a happy society. It's actually wrong. It's actually morally bad. That kind of rightness and wrongness in the world. But then there's another element, which is, and this I'm just blazing through some of these real quick, but God is the best explanation for not only the fact that morality is real, but he's also the best explanation for why you have a duty to do the moral thing. So there's moral is and moral ought. Okay, moral is. Hey, that action is moral. And there's moral ought. Hey, you ought to do that moral action. Parents should take care of their children. They they ought to, morally speaking. So th these are two different things. Um, the, the idea that you should do what's morally good is pretty difficult to explain um, in a godless universe, but it makes best the god is the best explanation for that in my opinion and a lot of other people's opinions too i think these are a number of different arguments for god's existence uh, some would just say god's existence is obvious they look around the world they go it's obvious that god exists someone made all this i think that's actually a very strong and good reason to believe in god the obviousness of god's existence does that mean it's obvious to everyone well it depends on what you mean by obvious um two people can walk in a room open the open the fridge of the kitchen and look and one of them says it's obvious where the ketchup is it's right there in the fridge and the other one probably the husband says it's not obvious to me at all but when he finally sees the ketchup sitting right there you know right there in the fridge right in front of his face he then has to say okay it was obvious to you and it's reasonable to say it was obvious something's wrong with me that i didn't see the ketchup right there that i'm looking right at it i don't know what's wrong with me but what I'm suggesting is if, if you don't see God's existence as obvious in creation, something is wrong with the person who doesn't perceive his existence. It's not that his existence isn't as obvious as the ketchup bottle in the fridge. Um, just throwing us husbands under the bus here because <laughs> I do that all the time. Something's wrong with my brain when I can't find what's right there. And my wife walks in in three seconds, not even three seconds. She's like, mm, it's right here. And um, I, obviously... I'm the one with the flaw here. It wasn't the fridge or the ketchup. <laughs> um, oh, hold on. There's more before I go to the second question today. Um, that's evidence for God's existence, evidence for God's goodness as well, because if morality points to God, then God is, of course, the moral being, the perfectly good, righteous one. And of course, I fall short of that. So even just seeing creation, I know that God is real and God is good, and I fall short of that goodness. What about Jesus, though? What about Jesus? So evidence for Jesus could be things like the resurrection evidence, which I think is really remarkable how much evidence there is for the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically speaking, there is a significant amount of evidence. When I first started researching the resurrection, um, I did this not to make videos. I wasn't doing YouTube content at the time. I wasn't intending to teach it to anybody. I was researching these things to prove to myself that I had legitimate reasons to believe. That was the reason. And when I first started looking into the resurrection of Christ, I remember thinking, you know, what, what little I knew about history and all that stuff, I just thought, what are the chances there's any evidence for it, for this Jewish carpenter who was killed 2,000 years ago by, by the, the Romans and the Jews working together, the, the leadership? What evidence would there possibly even be? There, I just didn't expect there to be much. For events that happened a long time ago, we tend to have very sparse evidence. Most of history is just lost. Most of the events in the lives of the people from those times is just gone forever. And Jesus was not ruling a, ki a kingdom on earth during his physical life. Um, he was not um, 
as far as the the a worldly kingdom is concerned he was not ruling and, and leading an army he didn't do the types of things that were more likely to leave a historical footprint but when i studied the resurrection of christ i found that there was a mountain of good evidence pointing towards his actual physical existence his literal death under pontius pilate crucified um, for these claims that he was making that were upsetting to the jewish leadership and his actual resurrection that he was entombed and that his body was missing and that there were these sincere witnesses who said they saw him alive after his death who had no um basically they had a lot of good reasons not to believe that sort of thing i'm just summarizing the data here <laughs> and and there just ends up being a pretty strong historical case now one one way people respond to this is they say um well you know a miracle is the most unlikely thing to happen, so you should have to have some crazy ridiculous amount of evidence. Basically, the evidence itself has to be miraculous. Um, I think what, what's happening here is I'm raising my unbelief meter really, really high so that reasonable evidence can't persuade me to change my mind. What, what I should do instead is look at the historical evidence and go, okay, history is a sparse record of events that happened. We, we basically construct, here's what we can say we're convinced happened. You know, here's the pieces of the puzzle. Now let's construct this into the most likely explanation of those things. And what some people do is they say, well, resurrection is automatically the least likely explanation. So no matter how many puzzle pieces we have, we will never let ourselves put the puzzle together to equal resurrection. That's a philosophical belief of, of um, basically um, materialism, you know, and, and, and uh, a belief that God simply doesn't exist or wouldn't do that or i'm not allowed to say he would and so then i bring my philosophical belief and that rules my historical investigation but if you're open to the evidence for the resurrection actually pointing to the resurrection of christ it's the best explanation so some people start with evidence for god anyway i'll move forward that i'm just racing through some things here another piece of evidence for christ is fulfilled prophecy uh, this is one of my favorite things to look at evidentially is the prophecy of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And I'll give you one wild, wild example that people often miss. So Jesus fulfills, this isn't just because my parents, right? <laughs> um, uh, contrary to this, um, uh, yeah, no, for me personally, okay, it's not because of my parents, but the, um, the prophecy Jesus fulfilled dictates things like the Messiah, you know, the Old Testament creates this massive expectation for a Messiah figure. Um, there is confusing information about him because he seems like he's going to rule and reign, but he also seems like he's going to suffer and die. Uh, Jesus ends up putting those things together in a way that you go, oh, it makes sense. But one of the puzzle pieces of the prophecy of the Messiah that people miss out on is the Gentile inclusion into faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, this blows my mind when I think about this. Here we have texts. We okay, this I'm gonna answer an objection. We know these passages were written before Jesus ever showed up. And they talk in the Old Testament repeatedly talk about the this this um this person, like say in Isaiah or in Psalm 22, where we have this person who is this messianic figure who causes the Gentile world to turn to and believe in the Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is this is a profound prediction about the world being changed. Okay, not just an event happening locally, but a massive change across all of humanity outside the boundaries of Israel. People who don't believe in these texts 
they're going to end up believing and trusting in the God of Israel. And how is it going to happen? Well, Psalm 22 talks about how, towards the end of the Psalm, about how the Gentiles will turn to the God of Israel because of what this suffering servant does, which looks exactly like the crucifixion of Jesus. There's like 16 corresponding pieces that fit the crucifixion of Jesus in Psalm 22. Here's this, what I found. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> it's my watch. Um, the, the amazing thing about this is that it actually happened. That we have Psalm 22, for instance, uh, a, a detailed explanation that fits the crucifixion really well, but a prediction of how that event would result in Gentiles around the world putting their faith in the God of Israel. And that has literally happened. Uh, my ancestors were not Jews. They were pagans. Yet I worship the God of Israel. And many of you listening right now, the majority of you, I'd say, are Christians who whose ancestors were pagans, yet you have turned to the God of Israel and we've forsaken those pagan gods. They're all considered dead religions now. And it, and the, the biggest competing religions, you know, other than, say, Hinduism, Buddhism, are like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, really Islam and Christianity uh, in a big way right now. And what is Islam? But an offshoot, a, a, a twisted offshoot of genuine Christianity. And then... Judaism, which is of course the the thing that that really they just they just need to fully believe all the things that are written. That's that's the that's the problem with modern Judaism. It doesn't fully believe all that's written, and it's replaced much of what God has said with the um, uh, basically rabbinic Judaism, which has come in and sort of superseded the traditions of man over over superseding over what God has written in Scripture. But but wow, like around the world. People right now are living examples of the fulfillment of many, many Old Testament prophecies about the Gentiles turning and coming to faith in the God of Israel. That to me is a, is a profound, one little piece of prophetic evidence. You can also talk about the trustworthiness of scripture. Um, there's a whole lot that can be said about that. These are other reasons to believe, right? Don't just say, my parents. Like there's lots of other reasons to believe. And you could even say, yes, personal experience. Now here's where I would be careful with personal experience. I would say personal experience is great evidence for the person who experienced it. It's not as strong for the person who didn't. So if you put your faith in Christ, God gives you life, you experience new spiritual life, new experiences of knowing God, of transforming who you are, um, bringing you hope and joy and peace, and the experience of knowing God through the Holy Spirit, that's huge, uh, huge evidence for you personally, but it's not really evidence for someone else unless they believe your description is true. So your personal experience is great proof for you. It's difficult to always use that as proof for someone else, depending on how much they trust that you are having, you know, that you're in your right mind or that your experience reflects reality. And so, um, yeah, personal experience is something that's powerful, more powerful for you than for others but it can be used. So there's a few things. Um, in, in the end, Jessica, your, your husband says he believes that faith comes about by family tradition. If that's true, then everything comes about by family tradition, uh, including his unbelief. And so then it, it's self-defeating. But it, but this isn't true. This is a, what's called a genetic fallacy. And your faith may come from lots of other things as well. And these are things you can point him to as well. And I hope, I hope that you do. He says that faith is just an expression of what families taught people rather than actual faith in God. And you have finally said, what does the Bible say about this? Um, the Bible does not, it does, it does charge families with the task of teaching truth to their children. So there's a sense in which, okay, you could say faith coming about by family tradition, but that's not the same. 
because it doesn't ever say whatever your parents teach you, it's automatically true. Like that's not a biblical teaching. And many times God calls like Abraham to leave his family and and, and abandon the, the old gods of the people he was with. Um, he often calls people to like say Gideon who rises up and he destroys the, the altar that his dad had. Um, so he's coming against. So allegiance to truth and allegiance to the genuine God who created all things is far more important than following family tradition, biblically speaking. Let's go to question number two. And this one comes in from, well, let me make sure I'm getting it right. Um, Anthony Ashley, who says, if we all get different wealth in heaven based on our deeds on earth, won't that create a situation where some people are poor and some are rich? And what happens once we all, we spend it all? Um, interesting idea there. There is uh, statements in scripture about rewards that we get. And you can, you can see these things as wealth uh, in a sense, because Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Don't store them up on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But I don't know that we're supposed to be thinking of these things as I will literally have currency that I spend in heaven to purchase things. I, I, I think rather God's, you know, using the analogy of finances and wealth and prosperity to talk about how what, what I want to do is see, um, basically, I want to live eternally in riches versus temporarily in riches and then be eternally poor or in poverty. Now, with that being said, there are different rewards that people have in heaven. Now, some people have said, well, the reward is just the other people that are in heaven whose lives you've impacted. And I would say that is an incredible re reward or incredible thing that I get to see in heaven, hopefully God willing, is that I'm, I'm there seeing someone who's been enriched, spiritually speaking, through the, through the ministry that God may have done through me. And you may see, hopefully God willing, the same thing. But that doesn't mean that that that's the only thing we get when it comes to like rewards in heaven. Um, there's another hint in scripture that talks about in, in a parable Jesus gives where he's like, hey, you know, this guy went away and he gave them um, different responsibilities. And it was basically a merchant on a long journey. Like this, this is a lot of the parables of Jesus talk about a delay this this unexpected delay or this the very long delay between um the time when someone's called to follow and serve and do whatever god's given them to do versus when god sort of shows up or the the the, the second coming ultimately and says okay what did you do with what i gave you but uh in one of these at the end he says you know i'll make you ruler over 10 cities ruler over that there's an implication that there's greater responsibilities that may be part of the reward. I'm just saying I don't know for sure, but this might be in the parables of Jesus, part of the reward being just different responsibilities that some people who all are in heaven and all experiencing the same sort of high degree of satisfaction and joy and peace and the presence of God and in fellowship with one another, yet we may have different responsibilities or authority in heaven in that eternal condition. And eventually heaven will be meeting earth. Read, read the end of Revelation to see that sort of the, the new Jerusalem comes down. God makes his dwelling with people and all that. But, but I think we're maybe better off leaning towards those descriptions because your question here, it suggests that 
Um, we have needs in heaven and we use money to purchase things for those needs. But I think the description biblically of heaven implies that we won't have any needs uh, that aren't met so that people won't get poor. There's, there's an abundance for everyone. Everyone is in the, the fullness of the pleasure and the joy and the peace of God. And these rewards may relate to other people and relationships that you, that you've built and established and that sort of thing. They may even relate to some kind of token God gives us to remind us of the, of that, which we invested in his kingdom. But I don't know that I don't, wouldn't project currency into heaven and the lack of finances to purchase things like that. I, I just wouldn't go down that road at the base level. What is, what is the lowest person have in heaven? What does the most poor saint have in heaven? Well, they were, they're ruling with Christ as co-heirs of all things. And so in that sense, everyone in heaven is immensely wealthy. So even though there are differences, the differences are like, I don't know, if you want to use a crude analogy, the difference between the super rich and the super, super rich or something. I mean, the differences are not um, between poor and wealthy, but because even the lowest saint, you know, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, even the, the lowest saint you know, he, Jesus said, he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets. I hope some of that helps. <laughs> uh, let's go to number three. Caleb Connolly says, Acts 26, 9 through 10, said, uh, cast my vote. He has this in quotes. I'm just reading the question first. Um, has implications that Paul was in the Sanhedrin also residing over Stephen's trial in 8.1 which would have required him to be married, even though that requirement wasn't recorded until later. I'm guessing it was still implemented. Could Paul have been married, perhaps widowed? So there are, okay, without getting into all the details, Caleb, um, I've heard some of the same discussion. Um, Paul was definitely in like leadership. You know, he's like, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Um, in the Acts 26 passage, you're, you're suggesting maybe he was actually in the Sanhedrin officially, and that that required him to be um, to be married. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things. Make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah. Uh, opposed to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he obviously was a man who had official Jewish authority. He calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Was he part of the Sanhedrin? Uh, I don't I don't know a definitive answer off the top of my head to that question. He may have been. Um, but here's the thing. We also know, in addition to that, that Jewish... Okay, so yeah, you, you were supposed to be married if you were doing these types of jobs. And th there was a really strong Jewish teaching at the time that you, you needed to be married. Okay, people just needed to be married and they were supposed to have kids because this idea of be fruitful and multiply, they thought they saw this as like a command that was binding upon them even still. Paul does not see this as a command on all humans. Like every person has to get married and have kids. Although that's a good thing, he did not see this as a requirement. Jesus didn't either because there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, Jesus talks about. And so there there is this as, a, as an option. Now eunuch here doesn't necessarily mean a physical castration okay forgive me for using those terms but um when jesus said that I, I know when i say this some people you're thinking that's what make yourself eunuch means um there were plenty of people who just swore off relationships and they could still use the term eunuch so the um the question is was paul married 
we don't have any definitive like proof that Paul was married. We just have implications, implications in several ways, like that it was a, it was a Jewish standard. It was like something that they expected. Even the Romans expected people to have kids and get married. Um, it was something that was even more expected of people who were Pharisees and people who were very much like, like Paul, people in positions like Paul of authority and stuff like that. And so it would seem very likely that he was married, but we also know for sure he was not married. He had no wife later on when he writes in first Corinthians seven, that he wishes everyone could be like him. He means free to serve the kingdom fully. He's not saying that you shouldn't get married or something. Um, marriage is good. And most people should for your own sakes, even, <laughs> but, um, but he's like, Hey, how great it would be for the kingdom. If more people could do this singleness thing. So he's single later. I think all we can do is say this. It seems very likely Paul was married earlier on. Is it possible he was an exception to the rule? Uh, it's always possible that he he became a Pharisee and all this other stuff, and somehow they worked it out, even though he wasn't married, that it was okay. Or it could be that Paul's wife died or left him, one or the other. She died or left him. Um, if if that happened, we don't have it rec recorded anywhere, so we don't know. But it wouldn't be that far fetched. People die, people pass away, and the mortality rate for people at a younger age was a lot higher at the time. So yeah, that may be the case. So it's one of those things where it's interesting and it, uh, I lean towards thinking he had a wife at some point and then she either died or left him. Um, never does he talk about that. Never does he mention it. For all we know, she had died five, 10 years before he heard about Jesus. That, that may be the case. And so we, we just don't know. But it, interestingly enough, it doesn't affect our theology much at all, does it? It's one of those things where we could debate it and find it very interesting, but it doesn't actually impact, as far as I know, any doctrinal issue, any theological issue, or even how well I understand Paul. So yeah, interesting. Uh, let's go to question number four. Christian Faria says, why at the end of 1 Samuel 16 did the author emphasize David's service to and recognition by Saul. But in 1 Samuel 17, the next chapter, Saul didn't seem to even know who David was. No one seemed to know him for that matter. Oh, I, I wish you would have included those specific verses. Let me see if I can find them. Uh, 1 Samuel 16. Um, I'm just going to read through some of this. The Lord said to Samuel, um, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him? Um, then he says, you know, fill your horn and go... Um, Basically, he goes to anoint David and appoint David on, you know, all the different sons show up. And finally, um, you know, he anoints David. Okay, so David shows up. Now he's really sort of on the scene in, in the text. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and made a harm and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit. Sorry, two seconds. Okay, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants. This is where David shows up in chapter 16 in front of Saul, who are before you to seek out a man who is skilled or skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Basically, he, it, it seems as though he's doing like worship music and that it's having a positive effect. This might be sort of demonstrating that David uh, does have the, whole, the spirit of God working on him and through him, even in this. And uh, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. 
and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Um, okay, so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. And whenever, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took a lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Um, so the next passage you guys are more familiar with probably, which is David and Goliath. And when David and Goliath show up, there's, there's uh, Goliath taunting the army. David shows up and there seems to be less familiarity with David. Let me see. Um, Gosh, I, this is the kind of thing I really should take more time to look at and think through before I give you a a, a, a thorough a thorough answer. You, as you guys understand, I I do not have all knowledge of all scripture. When tackling these things, let me talk about in general principle. When tackling these types of things, you read through and you gather the data. Okay, so um, Saul, was, you know, I need someone to play music. So David is in a certain context. He's there playing music. It actually says he became his armor bearer. Now the events of chapter sixteen happen over a period of time because David is, okay, Saul has this problem. He then goes and calls for help. David shows up and he helps and he becomes his armor bearer. The events of this, him doing the liar, Saul loving him, becoming armor bearer, all that stuff took time. Okay. It didn't just happen in one instance, not one scene. It's a series of events over a period of time. What happens in first Samuel 17 is one scene. The first question I have is, where does the scene of 1 Samuel 17 fit into the series of events of 1 Samuel 16? And my thought is that it fits somewhere in there. But where exactly? We don't have a chronological tale being told from start to finish where all the events of chapter 16 take place, then the events of 17, then the events of 18. Sometimes there is overlapping because what 1 Samuel 16 is doing is it's giving us a series of events that all connect cohesively. The thought of these events connect David's movement from being over the sheep to being the, the one who helps Saul and this demonstrating the spirit of God being on David versus David's moment, not before Saul, but before the people becoming a champion. Now, what's interesting is David, um, is said in chapter 16, which we already read. I'll just, you guys already read it, but he's said to be a man of war. Nothing in David's story so far shows him being a man of war. What I'm going to suggest is that it's possible chapter 17, the events with David are the reason why in chapter 16, David's called a man of war. Otherwise he was just with the sheep. And when in chapter 17, he shows up and he fights Goliath, he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't boast about any war stuff. He fought any battles. He fought, he says, a lion took my sheep and I struck it down. He talks about animals he fought. Okay, so that's interesting. This is perhaps part of the reason why David was known in chapter 16. is because the events of chapter 17. I'm suggesting that 17 happens somewhere in the midst of 16. But because the ideas are being focused on not just the chronology, it happens after. That would be, that would be my working, working theory there. And I'd want to spend more time on the passages to give you more detail. Um, question number five, CWQ says, I love Mark 924. And the phrase there is, uh, I believe help my unbelief. 
But how do we understand that along with James, how do we, how do we understand that along with James 1 verses 6 through 8, ask in faith with no doubts, he who doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. All right, so is faith, does that entail the absence of doubts? Hmm, interesting. So first off, let's recognize these are two different books, two different authors, two different events. Okay. They're not written one after another. It's not like Mark nine was written. And then the same author wrote the next verse was James, <laughs> because if you string together these ideas, you, you get cross conversations where you're like, wait a minute, I'm pulling things out of context. So if we look at Mark nine 24, what we're going to see is that, um, this is a father whose son is afflicted and he's looking to Jesus to help. He's already seen the disciples praying and, and there was, uh, um, there was no help. And so let me make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah, this is the same passage. He, they're like, hey, uh, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. But what happens is he asks the disciples to cast it out and they weren't able. And Jesus then highlights the issue. There was a lack of faith amongst the people generally speaking. And he highlights the issue with the man and he, he's like, I can do this if you'll believe. That's the basic message to the man. And the man responds and says, I believe, help my unbelief. What decision did the man make? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. That means that there was a, a, a fear and a sense of unbelief that was still present in his life, even while he was choosing to have faith. So that to me, like you, I go, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is encouraging. I believe that I can trust God and say, even though my heart, it wavers, my, 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 my own self will bring up unbelief in my own heart. I can then say, but I will choose faith because faith is a decision you make to rely upon God, even in, even in circumstances where you feel, you feel, you feel like you've got two different directions you could go. But then, like you said, how do we, you know, deal with James chapter one? So James one, six through eight. Um, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, I'll start in verse five, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This wisdom is specifically in context. We should know this. It's about suffering. It's about the wisdom to go through suffering and still trust God. Um, that's deep. That's really deep stuff actually, but let him ask verse six in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, this is like an on-off switch. With faith, no doubting. With faith, not doubting. Like, it, which one are you? I think that if you say, well, I have doubts, but I choose faith, that you've got the switch on. And that Mark 9 helps bring the nuance in to the issue that James is talking about when he's like, look, you've got the guy who um, prays trusting God and the guy who is ultimately not believing, right? They're approaching God in prayer. And James talks in other places too about prayer that doesn't work, prayer that isn't responded to. And he says, here, you're asking, but you, you're doubting. You're not really believing God. You're just going through the motions. Um, other times he's, he talks about prayer that that is um, wrong because you're praying to fulfill your own ungodly pleasures, um, that there's other types of prayer that can go wrong. So James talks about a few different of those things. And um, I think that, that Mark 9 brings the nuance in so that when you read, 
let him ask in faith without doubting, you won't think it's completely one-sided. You'll also recognize that um, when I have unbelief that's tempting me, that doesn't mean I am doubting God because my choice can be to trust the Lord even while I still sit with this unbelief that tempts me in my own heart and head. I think that, I think this is actually a place where someone might think, well, the Bible's being confusing. And I'm like, actually, I think the Bible shines here because it so perfectly relates to real humans. We really go through these psychological doubts. And even when you are, you have every reason to believe in God, every reason to trust in Christ, you can still just have unreasonable doubt and fears like, what if, what if, what if? And it's entirely wonderful that God, that God just meets us there and shows us like in Mark 9, yeah, but that's when you just choose to trust. Lord, I will just choose to trust you. I don't have rational, overwhelming rational reasons to deny my faith in Christ. What I have is just unbelief that just sits in my heart for no reason um, or for at least not good enough reasons. And I'm going to choose to trust you. And it's encouraging to know that that's good enough. So yeah, um, I think that it, Mark 9 adds the nuance to help us understand James better. Just don't rip them out of context and smash them together or it won't be nuance. It'll just be confusion. All right. Danny Boy TV says, how can I respond with scripture to Catholic a Catholic friend who says Mary's the mother of Jesus? So why wouldn't you seek help from her? Jesus wouldn't like you disrespecting his mom in any way. Okay, well, let's let's um, let's analyze that that thought process. So one of the things that's being that's being said here is that I can ultimately in Catholic theology, you can um, I, I want to say you can pray to Mary because it, it feels and looks the same as prayer. Okay. Some people are, well, I'm not praying. I'm asking her to pray, but not, okay. It's obviously more than that. If you look at the actual prayers that people are saying, but, but let's say I think I can reach out to Mary right in the, in, in her spiritual state and she can hear me and she can respond by basically having influence over Jesus. This is, this is classically how I understand it or over God. And you might go, well, that just sounds wrong, but, but Hey, when I ask my friend to pray for me, I ask my wife to pray for me, hey, honey, please pray for me that I would dot, dot, dot. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not manipulating. I'm just asking, you know, I think she has influence with God. So I want her to pray. But the big difference here that's not being discussed is that Mary is, is dead, right? Like her physical body died a long time ago. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to contact someone who has died. Now you might say, no, but she's not dead. She's alive forevermore. He who believes in me and dies, you know, won't die. And he who dies will live forever. So she's not really technically dead, but wait a minute. I mean, didn't like Samuel have that same hope and yet it was wrong when Saul tried to call him up and he gets rebuked for it big time. And so, yeah, like this idea of contacting those who've died, it's a door that God wants closed. Like I'm not supposed to talk to people who aren't alive in the, or in the earth physically. I'm supposed to direct my prayers just to God. Like that's just a general rule. And so to try to circumvent that biblical policy of not contacting those who've died, of not trying to do that. And that may be in, in place for a number of reasons. It may be that you, you don't, that it's unsuccessful. It may be that it detracts from worship and focus on God. It may be that it opens the door to demonic influence and deceptions that can come into a person's life. The point is, whatever the reasons are, it's something we're, we're told not to do consistently. And if you look at 
the biblical teaching about contacting the dead and how it's consistently, don't you dare do this. And then it doesn't change in the New Testament. You know, when Stephen dies and acts one of the first martyrs, right? Nobody prays to him. Nobody talks to him. Yet Jesus stood to receive him. So, you know, Stephen was in that glorious place. He wasn't in some other location. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's in heaven effectively, right? But nobody... There's no examples of this sort of thing. This developed in the church afterwards. Okay, this is a later development. That's one thing I would say. Mary's the mother of Jesus. Wouldn't you want to get her help? Look, when people are dead, you stop talking to them. That's that's the policy, biblically speaking. I understand the desire to, but that doesn't change what Scripture says. And I want to yield my heart and mind to Scripture. I will. I look forward to the day when I will see all my loved ones who have gone before me to heaven. But I can't just break the break the rules. To go and try to do that now. Here's another piece of evidence on this, which is there's a time in scripture where um, people went to Jesus's mom to influence Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There's actually two events I could point out. One is the wedding of Cana and, and Catholics and Protestants will both grab this scripture to use it in John 2. So at the wedding, you know, they, they go to Jesus's mom, hey, we're out of wine. She goes to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, what does your concern have to do with me? And then he tells the servants and they do it. They actually end up reproducing the wine. Importantly, though, it's done secretively. Um, I think that's actually the emphasis of the passage. It's done It's done in secret. It's done without everybody knowing. And that was the actual focus of the passage. It's not so much on Mary. But, but Protestants will go, look, see? He's like, what does your concern have to do with me? And then Catholics will go, oh, well, wait a minute. Or maybe some Orthodox would, wait a minute, look. Jesus did it anyways. So maybe you can go to Mary and she might, she might approve something. She might have influence that you, if you went on your own, it, it just wouldn't have worked. I, I think neither of these things are what the, the passage is teaching. <laughs> um, however, there's a passage that does more directly relate to Mary. And this is it. When Jesus is teaching the disciples and his mom and his brothers show up and they're like, hey, uh, we want to talk to you. And they think he's being kind of crazy at least his brothers certainly do. And he says, who is my mother and brothers, but those who do the will of God. That is to say, while Mary had a motherly place with Jesus, she did not take this sort of supernatural influence, like a, an influence over Jesus that was um, greater than anybody who just seeks him in his kingdom. And so there's this thing where he goes, who's my mother and brother and sisters? Like, hey, anybody, if, if you're like, well, don't I want Mary to pray? She doesn't have special access and special like influence that that living saints that you could talk to right now don't have. You could just ask anybody to pray for you. It's just as good, even better, because you're not trying to contact those who died, which is something God forbids in Scripture. Um, and you say the last thing they said was Jesus wouldn't want you disrespecting his mother in any way. Well, I agree with that. Why would I just disrespect Mary? But here's a thought. You can disrespect people by giving them more honor and glory than they actually have. That is also disrespectful. If I was to show up, like, let's say I taught at your church and I show up at your church and you get up and you're introducing me and you go, oh, here's Mike Winger. He's the greatest Christian teacher in the world. I would feel offended that you said that because I'm sure it's not true. But also, um, I I don't want, like, I, I it's disrespectful to to exaggerate those types of things about me. I would not be comfortable with that. But much of what's said about Mary is disrespectful on the overly positive side, on the exaggeration side. I don't think she would like it. I don't think she'd appreciate it. And so, anyway, 
much more can be said about this. Um, if you if you try to build the doctrines that Roman Catholicism has or that the Orthodox Church has, the beliefs they have about Mary, just from Scripture and from the examples there, what you'll find is places like the wedding at Cana where it's not even about Mary and they're like, oh, see, you can, this is really a parable about Mary and how you can use her influence. Like th this is not what Scripture is actually teaching about these things. When Jesus actually teaches, yeah, Mary is blessed. Okay, she's blessed among women. She got to be the mother of the Lord. Absolutely. But that shouldn't be exaggerated into her being the queen of heaven and that sort of thing. Let's go to question number seven. Um, Hot Wax 93 says, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, and they say that the belief in an immortal or immaterial soul is pagan in origin and has no basis in the Bible. Is this true? Um, I, I, I don't believe that that's true. Um, my opinion, okay, is that while this this is well let me let me just frame the discussion a little bit for you guys um it's not just seventh day adventists it's also jehovah's witnesses and then it's also christians who are what are called conditionalists or they they think that the soul does not exist immortally automatically that this was like a greek belief that sort of bled into christianity over time and it's not found actually in scripture i think that that's incorrect um, I think that there's even Old Testament passages that imply that there's an immortality. Okay, this is my my belief right now. I, I would I would say those who disagree with me on this, I wouldn't call them false Christians. I wouldn't say they're unsaved, but I do think that it's incorrect. And I will one day look into it in more detail so I can do a more thorough analysis. But um, but you know when when Saul is called up to encounter David, the, the whole witch of Endor thing, which sounds like a Star Wars reference, but it's not. Um, when that event happens, Saul is, his, his soul is existing outside of, apart from his body. Okay. So it's not just like when his body dies, he ceases to exist. Um, when Jesus died, he obviously didn't cease to exist. When Paul talks about death, he describes how he wants to stay and do the work of, for the kingdom to benefit others, but he would prefer even to die so that he could be with the Lord. Now, if dying puts him with God in that moment. He's boom, I'm dead. And now I'm with the Lord. If that's the reality, then I can understand why death would be something you desire because death would, uh, would more quickly bring you into the presence of God. But if you die and it's not until 2000 plus years later that you're resurrected and now you're with the Lord, then you were not with the Lord any quicker. You just got less work done. So Paul would only desire to stay alive. It just, this doesn't quite make sense. Um, so those are a few of the reasons, um, there's other ones as well. I'm just sharing a couple off the top of my head. Um, it can be, it can feel impressive when someone says people only believe X because of pagan philosophy. But if you point to some scripture that seems like it shows those things, then, then that claim should lose its power. Okay. So, so yeah, that. That seems to be the case. It's possible that that man was not physically immortal. That's possible because they had to eat of the tree. So there may or may not have been a physical, natural immortality. Maybe the eating of the tree had to had to be done in order to sustain that physical life. But it seems like there's good evidence in Scripture that after you die, you have a disembodied, right, but genuine, continued living experience. Um, ongoing experience. I, would you call it life? Not in the fullest sense, not in the full sense that God has for us, 
but you're not, you, you don't cease to exist, would be my understanding. Uh, number eight, uh, no more questions for today. We were fully loaded up on questions and thank you guys for joining. Um, I hope I'm giving you lots to think about. Again, I, I know I'm not right about everything. Obviously, if I knew I was wrong about something, I wouldn't say it, <laughs> but I'm sure there's things I got, I've got, I get wrong. I hope if nothing else, you're being sharpened in your process of thinking things through biblically so that you as a tool, like in a positive sense, <laughs> um, you as a, as a, as a precision instrument, evaluating the text of scripture and comparing it to real life and tough questions that you get better and better at this over time. Um, because there's only good things that come from thinking biblically and living biblically. All right. Number eight, not, uh, Natisra Gohis. Sorry. I'm totally pronouncing your name wrong. I'm sure. I apologize. Um, hi, Pastor Mike, Nathan and Tersa here, Nathan and Tersa here. Um, in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, what are the fruits of the false prophets? The teaching, the followers, the acts, or something else? Oh, that's that's a real, I here's a question I genuinely still struggle with. So I'll just talk about it a little bit. Um, and we'll look at the passage. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, that'll probably be a clue as to the meaning here, is the nature of these guys, is that they're, they're they, they imitate sheep, but they're wolves. Now, what do wolves eat? sheep so they're want to make prey of the people that they are um pretending to, to help you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire thus you will recognize them by their fruits this is a passage um, and an idea that is often used by cult groups to promote their, their religious beliefs and their leaders. Um, so Mormonism will say Mormonism supports so much like good works. Um, the, the, the things that are, in fact, they'll, they'll spend money on charity and helping people. And then they'll spend a lot of money on advertising that stuff as well. Or so I've been told. So they're not alone in this. Um, the World Mission Society Church of God has organized a charity that they go out and do good works and they get lots of photo opportunities and then they put all of the stuff that they're doing on their website so they look like a, a charitable organization that's doing lots of good works and they can point to this verse over here, there you go on that side, <laughs> um, and say, recognize us by our fruit. Okay, so here's the thing. This recognizing people by their fruit, it seems like we need to at least put it in the context of being in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing means something, doesn't it? So recognizing people by their fruit, it doesn't mean they aren't going to try to bring up deceitful things, evidence that looks like I'm... And if you were to ask, how, how does a wolf imitate the good fruit of a sheep? He takes someone else's, shears someone else, puts it on himself. It's, it's someone else's clothing. Okay, this is I'm, I'm possibly going out on a limb. <laughs> Again, I still struggle with answering this question. Um, but my understanding is this, for now at least. When the charitable organization is doing good works, but the fruit is not in the leaders who are, who are good people, the, the, the prophets themselves who are genuinely, the, the people who start the religion are not genuinely um, honest and good and generous and all this, but they are rather they gather people around them and then they make those people do a bunch of good works and then they they fleece that flock, then they wear that fleece. 
but inwardly they're consuming, they're eating off the people. I think an example of this could be Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, he uh, starts Mormonism and has all his family values. But in, in himself, he slept with many, many women. He polygamy with many women. He um, uh, would go up to someone's wife and be like, yeah, God called you to marry me, even though you're already married. And then there's an inner inward internal debate in the Mormon church about how many of these women did he actually have sex with. There's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So he starts a religion that does lots of good works, but this is so he can wear that as a, as a guise. Islam. Muhammad, in many ways, Islam promotes family values. But in other ways, Muhammad butchered and murdered people who wouldn't follow him and wouldn't do just whatever he wanted them to do. Nobody matches up to Jesus. His holiness, his godliness, his selflessness, they will use that as a clothing. Right? So they're going to be, look at, look at my religion. My religion does lots of good. But look at the founder of your religion. Look at Muhammad. Look at Joseph Smith. Look at these people. They... They're not okay. Like they were frauds and brutal individuals. Whereas Jesus, who is the cornerstone of Christianity, he stands up and he shows himself to be the perfect and pure one. So I think if you're evaluating this stuff, one thing to be aware of, false prophets will put on sheep's clothing. They will try to imitate all the goodness, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. When you dig behind the curtain and you see what these people are doing, they're usually men usually, not always, but they're generally men who are uh, committing sexual sins and uh, amassing wealth for themselves and things like that. Anyway, those are my current thoughts on that. Um, but hopefully you're thinking even more clearly about it than I am. All right, let's go to question number nine. Uh, Spencer Reynolds says, hey, Pastor Mike. Hey, Spencer. Uh, thanks so much for your ministry. Um, I am. It's entirely God's grace to me that I get to, to serve at all. Uh, my question today is in light of 1 Corinthians 3.18. How can I lead others spiritually with wisdom without considering myself to be wise? Oh, interesting. Okay. Let's go to that passage. <clears throat> I'll let you guys read it on screen while I drink water. <laughs> Noisy water. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Um, maybe one help would be wise in this age. So there is a type of thing we might call worldly wisdom. And this doesn't just mean um, something people think is wise and they're not Christians. And so that if you have like a doctor who's really a great doctor, but he's, but he's like Muslim or Mormon or whatever. I was just talking about those religions. So, um, say he's Muslim and you think, well, I can't use him. He's not a Christian because that's worldly wisdom. I don't think that's actually what it means. Rather here in first Corinthians, Paul is talking about Jesus as being the true wisdom of God and that the wisdom of this world, which has to do with religious philosophies too, which try to find alternate explanations for God. That is not real wisdom. Now, the, the dependence and belief in Jesus was looked at culturally as being foolish. Like it's just so dumb. Like you guys can't compete with the philosophical brilliance of, of, of the, the, the Greeks and the Romans here. And so he's like, no, this is, this is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. You think you're going to get to it through all of your 
hard reasoning and maybe your hard reasoning will lead you to Christ, but it might lead you other ways too, because the, the heart of man can guide us more than the head of man, um, more than we realize. And th this is all to say wise in this age doesn't mean wise period. It means wise in this age or wise in the eyes of this age, wise in the eyes of the world. If you think you're wise in the eyes of the world, you are probably not a Christian um, or are a special kind of Christian or more, maybe a more progressive one, um, one who doesn't believe all of the, the silly stuff that like a lot of other Christians believe. It seems to me that to gain worldly respect, um, it's not always the case, but it is often the case that Christians are required to abandon simple biblical faith where they just trust in Jesus and they have to like put a spin on it somehow. So it sounds better to people. Um, and don't worry about that. I think that's the main thing here. You may be a wise person in general and you want to be wise and you should try to be a wise person. What you don't want is to be like someone who thinks he's wise in this age. Like I look around and I have this great worldly wisdom. Anyway, I, I hope that that helps you. I, I think that you should be wise. You want to be wise. Um, we should be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Proverbs is a book written to make us wise. Um, but what you don't want to do, even Proverbs warns, is be wise in your own opinion. Th that is, you have an unrealistic, higher estimation of your wisdom than what's real. That's something you want to avoid at all costs. Always, always have a sober, realistic view of yourself. Not up here, not down here, where you really are, which may actually be lower than people want to be and want to say they are have a realistic perspective of yourself nothing arrogant about knowing that you're wise as long as you also know where you're a fool then then you can do a lot of good i hope that helps you out uh coffee lover number 10 question number 10 here there you go there we go says i suffer from same-sex attraction i fight it but sometimes give in will god give up on me at some point if i give in um Okay, so here's the thing, coffee coffee lover, um, also enjoy coffee myself quite a bit. But um, the, the difficult thing here is that you're asking me what really is a, there's two sides to this question. One is a theological thing. Is there, can I tell everybody in the world that no matter what, God will never give up on you, you will always be saved? And then another question, which is you and your specific situation and this is a counseling question. Like, how are you doing? Where's your heart at? Where's your faith at? Is your faith genuine and you're a genuine believer who's struggling? Or are you kidding yourself about your faith in Christ? And uh, I know this is a deep and terrifying things and important things, um, things that are, that couldn't be more important. I can, I can only answer the first question. I can't really answer the personal one uh, in detail. I can only give you general, like sort of truths, wide open truths. So, let me talk about the first one, then I'll give you some general truths. The first question, can I tell people around the world, uh, no matter what you do, no matter how many times you sin, God will never give in, God will never uh, give up on you, rather. Um, no. In a sense, there's there there's a, there's a yes, there's like, no matter how much sin you've committed, Jesus' blood is enough to cover your sin. Okay, so there's no like amount of sin that's too much for the blood of Jesus. I don't believe that that's a reality. But there is such a thing as a person who pretends to have faith in Christ. Maybe even they believe it themselves. They pretend to themselves, just like we can believe our own lies. But their faith is, is not genuine. And their sin is, it's not disqualifying them from the kingdom. Their sin is revealing that their faith is not really genuine in the first place. 
I don't know how to throw out a, a, a policy like here, use a, use a mood ring. And if it shows up blue, then that must be you. Like, I don't know how to give you a test on this. I just know that it's a real category. And that, that category seems biblical. Okay. James talks about it. He says, what if, if you, you say you have faith, but you don't have works, like you don't do anything for God. You never serve God. Maybe that faith is not real. Maybe that faith is dead faith. That faith is, is not, it's, it's just a pure, like, I, oh yes, I agree. Jesus died. Well, the demons believe and tremble. James chapter two talks about this in detail. So I think that that category exists. The Bible shows that category exists. Some people get mad at me because I believe that category exists. They make videos about me being a false teacher. I've seen even recently. Fine. Um, James 2. Read it. Like this, this passage clearly is meant to scare us. Because the demons, they believe, but they fear. They tremble. And he's like, and you should too. But the only reason why he's saying this is because he thinks, I I believe in James 2, the, the author inspired by the Holy Spirit is, is saying, hey, you can also repent and actually believe. So if, if this is you and you go, I'm, I'm, I'm steeped in sin. I think my faith is not genuine. The result isn't give up. Oh, I guess I'll just keep sinning and not care anymore. No, the thing is to have genuine faith. I don't just need to stop sin. No, I need to turn in faith to Christ. Because if my faith is genuine, then this is going to be a byproduct. Is It will impact the sin issue. But that does not mean that Christians aren't tempted by sin or that you aren't still facing same-sex attraction or that you never fail again. But at what point do we say my failure, my committing this sin that I'm tempted with means I'm not really a Christian? I don't, I don't know how to, unless it's like wholesale, your whole life just shows you just, you just don't care about God. You just claim to be Christian, but everything about you says you're not, then you're probably not a Christian. Okay. But you're somewhere in the middle there. I don't know how to determine that. And anybody who says they, they do know how I, I, wonder how they do that. Um, so I just puts me, it just puts things in question to me now for you individually, for you personally, where are you at? Is let me, you know, do a self-evaluation. Is your faith in Christ genuine? I, I don't know. If you don't know, then, then what, what's the solution? Put genuine faith in Christ. Well, how do I, how do I do that? You just start trusting in him more. Like I'm going to rely on you today. For all that I need, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in you. You you tell him, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And you you make those those moves and you ask God to meet you there and to draw near to you. Because ultimately, knowing God is a relationship with God and you're asking him for that relationship that much more. Um, but one thing I would, I would counsel you against is defeatism. Be really aware of this because this is the temptation. Like sin wants any way into your life. Sin wants any way to get into your life and get control. And one of the ways it gets control is defeatism. Well, I'm struggling so much, I may as well give up. That is merely a temptation. That is merely another thing you have to not believe, another lie that's that's there that I use to self-justify committing sins. Whatever you've done, however dark it's been, however bad it's been, the only solution is to turn from sin to Christ. Right now, that is the only solution. You trust that his mercy will be enough. You turn to him yet again, as genuinely as you are capable of. You ask him to meet you there and you rely upon his grace. There is no other solution and anything else is a bad idea. Uh, I, I, I hope and pray the Lord helps you through this. You and every other Christian out there are tempted all the time with sin. All the time. That's nothing new, nothing unexpected, and his grace is enough. Just have real faith in him.
Number 11. Um, William White says, is it okay for me and my long distance girlfriend to stay in an Airbnb for a couple months if we do not fall into sexual sin, but are not married? Um, yeah, I, William, my short answer, and I've been asked this before by others, uh, is that this seems very unwise. And I would, I would, I would, um, be shocked if it worked, <laughs> if you didn't fall into some like sexual sin. Um, you're planning on staying together for a couple months. That basically puts you in a marriage condition, does it not? I guess what I would want to know is why aren't you just getting married? Uh, is this like a test, a trial run? Let me see what do we think about living together. And like, well, I mean, because you're long distance, maybe you feel like you have to spend more time together. There seems like it seems to me there could be a lot, a lot of wise ways to do this, wise ways to spend time together. You don't need to go to an Airbnb. Hey, how about she stays over at this person's house while you're over here at this other person's house and you can spend some more time together. I I, I just don't see the need and it seems very unwise. Um, the two verses that come to mind um, are the scripture that says, make no provision for the flesh um, to fulfill its lusts. Making provision for the flesh means I'm creating a scenario where it's just so easy for me to sin. And I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'll put it this way. Um, William, when I was engaged, right, when me and my wife were together before we were married, we, uh, we, we waited till marriage, but that would not have happened if we stayed together for a few months at Airbnb. There's no way I would not have made it. So you, maybe you're, you, you guys are capable of that. I, I just, I doubt it to be honest with you. Um, I think you'll regret having made that decision. Um, and that it will provide opportunity for the flesh. The other scripture that comes to mind is that we shouldn't, as Christians, we don't even want a hint of sexual immorality. That's an interesting term there, hint. I don't want anything like that experience in my life. And so one of the biggest issues in the New Testament church, as the gospel's going out to new people and they're and they're getting saved, is like sexual immorality. Like this is this is something God's really, really, really big on. We are not nearly big enough on this issue as Christians today, modern Christians, we tend to be really lax. I think that the new Testament apostles, Jesus, I think that the early church w had such high standards of sexual purity that we lower them quite a lot. And so something to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I share all that with you as a friend, like as if, as if I was your friend here is find some other way, man. <laughs> That's my advice, my counsel to you. Um, Christine with a C says, do you have to attend church to be a Christian? Um, no, you have to be the church. Like you, I mean, so church as a location, as a building, we, we call that church, but actually biblically speaking, the church is more like the people, like they are the church. The church is, um, you individually, you're not a church. Like I'm not a church. But collectively, me and other Christians, we are the church. Okay, so when we gather together, that's church. So do you don't you don't do you have to do this to be a Christian? Well, let's imagine for a second you've got a Christian who is in solitary confinement. They get saved, they give their life to Jesus, but they literally cannot go anywhere. They, they don't even get to talk to other Christians. They just have a Bible in their cell. Is that person still a Christian? Absolutely, like no doubt about it. Like of course they are. So, but what if they get out and now they can attend church, but they just choose not to? Are they a Christian? Uh, yeah. Is there a problem? 
Yes. Are you a healthy Christian if you refuse to fellowship with other believers? No, you're obviously not. Why do I say that? Because of the nature of what the church is. Read, read Ephesians if you have any questions on this, because Ephesians talks about us as the body of Christ, that we're joined and knit together by the action of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. You are given gifts that other people need, and they are given gifts that you need. And then God joins you with other believers. He fought so hard to join you with others and you want to isolate from them. That's very unhealthy. That is very inappropriate. Um, at, at, an, at an extreme point, okay, look, I get it. There's people who feel they've been hurt. There's people who feel like they're just, they just don't care. They just feel like their lives are too hectic and busy and they don't want to get involved. Um, I get all that. But if you see how important gathering as a church is in scripture, it should be important to you. And if it's not, that's minimum, it's unhealthy. Worst case scenario, it's manifesting something really bad about the person's heart. Because first John talks about this. It says, Hey, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you don't really love God. How do you, you claim to love God, but you don't love the one who's made in the image of God. You don't, you don't love the one God loves. Like you're going to show your love for God often by how you treat your fellow Christians. And so for those who kind of like, there are Christians out there who say like, I, they just sort of despise other Christians wholesale, just Christians in general, I sort of despise them. That is such an un, now it's one thing to have valid criticisms of Christians and everybody else, because we all have issues. But if I just have targeted criticisms just towards other Christians and I sort of despise them and I don't want any fellowship and connection with them all, period, like as a rule, that may be manifesting a very, very serious spiritual darkness that's in my heart. So yeah, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. If you're not though, if you refuse to be part of a local body of Christ that Jesus has died to, to, to bring you into, it manifests something unhealthy, possibly something scary in your heart. Um, but there are some who I get it. You're, you, 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 the only church in your area is like seriously problematic, bad theology, um, oppressive and cruel leadership. Um, like, but at least try to gather with some believers, do a weekly meeting with whatever believers you can, a Christian, you know, from who gets to goes to church and you guys start your own Bibles to do something, man, be knit together with the body of Christ. It's so, so important. And it's so easy for us to just drop it because we're just unspiritual people sometimes. Um, number 13, uh, MC says, when people of other religions pray for us and we see these prayers answered, how do we reconcile that with Christianity? Does that mean all faiths are good? Thank you for your ministry. Um, I just haven't experienced this much. So I, I don't, I haven't actually encountered this before where someone of another faith prays for me. And then the thing they're praying for happens just that way. Um, yeah, I haven't really experienced that. So I, I don't have a lot of, um, to my knowledge anyways. And so I don't have a lot of like thought put into this and reactions to it. I will say in scripture, um, it's not only the prayers that go to God in genuine faith that are answered. There are limited answers coming from other sources, demonic sources even. And those limited answers are there to deceive people. So Pharaoh is a great example of this. In the book of Exodus, we read about this, where Moses does a miracle by the power of God. You say he cast down a stick, becomes a serpent, and then they cast down theirs, and they become serpent through their arts, through some sort of maybe demonic power. Um, as you read on, 
they keep trying to copy what Moses does. And the copy is meant to deceive the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not yield to the true God, but he'll continue worshiping false gods. So is there a biblical answer for prayer being answered from a false source so as to imitate, you know, real, like, like good godly answered prayer so as to deceive people into believing false things. Absolutely. There's, there's a biblical category for that. And so I, I, that, that's where I would go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would that mean all faiths are good? I mean, if all faiths, the, the idea that all faiths are good, <clears throat> um, seems like inherently contradictory because all faiths don't teach that all faiths are good. And so if all faiths are good and they're teaching that all, that all faiths aren't good, then, then that's, that breaks itself. When people say all faiths are good, what they usually mean is my faith is good and I have things I like in each religion when they agree with me, but really my faith is what's good. And then they kind of have their own sort of amalgamation of like their own beliefs that just sort of suit them and often no evidence to support it. And those people are, are often difficult to talk to because they're, they will sometimes require a lot of evidence for others, but no evidence for their own beliefs. I had a guy who we were talking about Christianity and that happened. He was in the domestic violence program and I was talking to him about the Lord a lot, especially like after class, even when we just sit and talk and I was talking about evidence for the resurrection of Christ, evidence from prophecy, evidence for God's existence. And I gave him all these evidential things. And, and now maybe he didn't believe everything I was saying was true. Okay. But I've looked into this stuff. I think all that stuff is accurate. Um, and so I don't know what, what the, all the reasons were, but I gave him reason after reason after reason for God's existence, for for trusting the scriptures, for believing in Jesus. And he said, at the end of it all, he just said, you know, Mike, there's just not enough evidence for me. You know, I really want, I'm like evidence-based person. I really want to believe based on evidence. And so I finally thought, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Like, I'll just move on. What does what this guy even believe then? Um, so I asked him, I said, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I think we, I think reincarnation is true. And I said, reincarnation. So like, you think like you die and you come back. And I was like, well, Who's doing the reincarnating and, and what's being reincarnated and who's, who's running the show here? I'm thinking of all that stuff, but instead I bounced off what he had said to me prior about evidence. And I just asked him, I said, what evidence do you have that reincarnation is true? And he was like, huh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I just kind of think it's true. I, 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 I think he just liked it. And so I said, it's interesting how you have really, really high standards of how much evidence you want for Christianity to be true, but you require no evidence to believe in reincarnation. So I don't know why I got on that track, but I thought it was interesting. Um, all right. Number 14, Noble Penguin says, if the payment for sin is death and both believers and non-believers will die anyways, then why did Jesus have to die for us? Was it for a chance at us entering heaven? Um... So death is more than just physical death. Death is, um, uh, the, so the, the payment for sin is death, um, involves more than merely a physical dying. Okay. Cause I do still physically die. It also involves not coming back to life for eternal life. Now I, I understand life to mean more than just existence. Okay. So that I'm going to caveat because a bunch of people are going to be thinking about a lot of things right now. I think life involves more than just existence here. When I say eternal life, it's more than merely existing. I think 
death and you don't come back. You don't come back into eternal life. You, you, you live apart from God or exist apart from God rather for all eternity. Um, that's my current understanding of that. I think that's what scripture teaches. And so when Jesus died in my place, he successfully restored my ability to have life. He gave me life. He brought me into eternal life and relationship with God. I die physically, but that's part of my whole body is part of this fallen world. that's going to be replaced and renewed. And I'm going to be given a new body that's, that's fit for eternity. So I'm going to be restored. So death in a sense is part of my just passage into eternal life. It's no longer just like a payment for sin or something like that. Um, let me make sure I'm answering your question. Uh, both believers and non-believers die anyways. So why did Jesus die for us? Um, was it for a chance at entering us entering heaven, sort of a, the us entering heaven, like I disembodied, I'll be in the presence of God for a season, but then there's a resurrection where I get a new body and that new body is like Jesus's body. So Jesus, in a sense, purchased for me a new life with a new physical body that will be in the new physical heaven and earth that will live physically as well as spiritually and in God's presence for all eternity. So it was a lot more than just going disembodied to heaven. Read Revelation, read the end of Revelation, um, look at 1 Corinthians 15. The scripture emphasizes the new resurrected body that's coming, this new glorified physical body, more than we often do as Christians today. We tend to just sort of stop at heaven being this disembodied in the presence of God experience, but that's just temporary. And the, the Bible tends to focus even more on the new res, the, the new creation where we have a resurrected body and it's a new body. It's glorified. We don't know what we'll be like, but we'll be like him. John tells us. So I know I'll be like Jesus. Why? Cause Jesus is the one who, who is my, um, he's, he's my payment. And he's also the one who gives me this life that I'm going to have. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, why did Jesus have to die for us? I mean, I, I think that if he didn't die, you would only after you die, be facing judgment. You would not be experiencing eternal life. You would not be in the presence of God. You would not have a resurrection, a resurrection, um, of life, I should say. So yeah, all that stuff in scripture. <clears throat> Number 15, Braden Lundgren says, how would you respond to those who point out that Augustine considered the Apocrypha as canon praying for healing and wisdom? Um, I don't really know the details on this one, Braden. Um, so did, did Augustine considered the, the Apocrypha or the deuterocanonical books? Did he consider them as canon? I don't, I don't know. I don't remember if that's the case. Let, let's suppose that it is. Um, okay. Augustine to me. Okay. I could call me a Protestant if you want, <laughs> call me a low, a low church Protestant if you want, but, um, Augustine thinking something doesn't make it true. And so I, I think that's a pretty big deal. I think that we have. Like you could, you could respond and say, well, Jerome didn't, Jerome didn't think that those, those books were part of scripture and who's Jerome. Well, he's like, a, he, his translation became the official translation of, you know, for the Roman Catholic church. Um, so this is, this is like what you could do is you can grab one church father and then you, well, this one said, and then you grab another one. Well, this one said this. And so then you find out that the church fathers don't actually give you this clean, linear line of like just a perfect agreement oh they all thought the following this is sometimes what we hear when we're talking to roman catholics or orthodox people will sometimes treat the church fathers like they had like they all thought x they all thought x anytime someone says all the church fathers thought this 
Usually that's not accurate, generally speaking, okay? There's always, there's something they all agreed on, but for the most part, they didn't. Um, so picking one out of the crowd, Augustine, I'll pick Jerome. He had a different view, and you could pick others who had different views. And so we need something better than that, okay? We need something more than false claims about the universal agreements of the church fathers or just cherry-picking ones we like. Because you, you pick Augustine here, but you wouldn't agree with him on, on, on his views on marriage, right, over here. And so we need someone who can cut through the fog of the disagreements of the church fathers. And, and that ultimately is scripture. The word of God is what's going to cut through and going to give us that clarity. And even uh, in the New Testament, there's indications about the Old Testament canon that we can that we can see. Jesus um, seems to affirm that th those as scripture and not all the deuter deuterocanonical books and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I just, it's not that impressive if, if, if in fact, Augustine considered the Apocrypha as canon. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I just don't know one way or the other, but yeah. Number 16, uh, Magma Melon says, could you shed some light on what Jesus means in Luke 10, 18? Is Jesus talking about Satan's in initial fall here? And what purpose does it serve in the passage? Thank you so much for your ministry. This is something I've struggled with as well. So let's just look at it together. You guys will recognize it real quick. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When did this, when did that happen? Right? Is Jesus talking about the fall of Satan? Like past tense, like sometime long ago? Like when we think about the fall of Satan, because the Old Testament does not narrate this event in any detail. We have pa in passages that I think are talking about Satan, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and um, where it talks about Satan, I believe. And it talks about his sort of fall, but it doesn't really give us like the details. Um, some think, you know, Satan is barred from accessing heaven, but in Job, he accesses heaven. It, it's it's in Revelation where we see what seems to be a future prediction where we have him kicked out of heaven. You know, Michael and his angels may war with the devil and his angels and Satan falls. Now, some would say, well, that that's maybe a reference to some great past event. But most, I think, would would affirm that that looks like it's a future thing. So what is this Satan falling like lightning from heaven? I, uh, I'm not sure. Let's, let's back up. We'll read more context. I'm not going to be able to give you a satisfactory answer. I admit to you because I don't have a satisfactory answer on this just yet. So the 72 were sent out by Jesus two by two in all these towns and they cast out demons and they're like shocked. They're like this, amazed that this is working. They go, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus responds to the fact that they can, they can cast demons out of people. This is something they're amazed by. He responds to it by saying, I saw fate, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Is Jesus saying, um, of course they're cast out. I, I stood there while Satan was falling like lightning from heaven. Um, or is he saying like, I had a vision that connects. These are options and I don't know which one to pick. I had a vision as you guys were casting out demons and, and I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven, which becomes like a parable of, of uh, how the kingdom of God is going to overcome maybe. Or is he saying something different? Is I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, uh, a prophetic thing he's seeing that refers to the future. I just don't know. 
Um, and I'm sure somebody out there has, has it right. And I don't, um, Isaiah does talk about a fall. I, I mentioned Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 14, 12, which says, how are you fallen from heaven? O day star, O son of the son of dawn. And how are you cut down to the ground? You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven and all these like, I will statements from Satan. And he's like, yeah, but you're going to be destroyed. You're brought down. Now, what's interesting about this is this seems to be, uh, if if it is, as I understand it, to be about Satan, it seems to be something that's sort of like prophetic about the future. So maybe, I just don't know for sure, but maybe what Jesus is saying here is, guys, what you're seeing, these demons cast out, you're seeing the kingdom of God trumping Satan, um, which Isaiah talked about. Um, it could be the... Um, what, what some people call the already not yet of prophecy, uh, which is to say there are statements that are fulfilled partly, um, almost like a sample, like a, like a taste, and then they're fulfilled more fully later on. So the first and second coming of Jesus is a good example of this, where there is a breaking in of the kingdom of God, overcoming the power of Satan, but then there is yet still a future time when Satan will fall more finally and more fully. I would lean towards that. Um, but yeah, something to keep thinking about. Brijesh Joshi says, <clears throat> uh, Hey, any thoughts on struggles with OCD like prayers? For example, feeling the need to pray for protection over family members every day in fear that something bad will happen to them if I don't. Um, so I don't experience that to that degree. And so I don't have the kind of good advice I could give if I was someone who sort of been down that road a lot myself. Um, the scriptures that come to mind is where the Bible tells us God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And I don't think it's healthy at least as Christians if our if our prayers are driven by fear like if I don't do this sort of ritual of prayer this kind of this over and over, then this bad thing will happen um that's not a healthy place for your prayer life to be so I, an example of this could be and this isn't in the, in in uh prayer but it is in my life as I was trying to understand what it meant to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit so I was in an environment, I was just, this is you know over 20 years ago, okay, this is quite a long time ago. I was in an environment where when I um, heard other people talk about how the Holy Spirit would lead them, I, I got the impression that I just wanted the Holy Spirit to be giving me sort of random directions to do random things in my life. And that's what it meant to be led by the Spirit. So that was one of the things that it meant. So basically, you know, her story about someone who they're driving and God's like, go left. And he, they go left and then he goes, go right. And okay, pull in here, buy milk. Oh, go over here, drive here, turn here. And they pull up to a house and they've got a gallon of milk and they're, they knock on the door and there's a screaming baby and an angry man. I, this is a story I heard. Angry man comes to the door and he's like, Hey, why are you one? My kid's crying. And he goes, I feel like God wanted me to bring you milk. And so the guy's like, Oh, this is why my baby's crying. We need, we need milk. And I, I don't know if that story was true or not, but I know that it became an example that I heard from multiple people, um, that it was like, this is what it's like to be led of the spirit, at least one example. 
Now, it's always possible God can do that. I don't doubt that at all. But is it the standard? So I remember driving down the street. I'm, I'm a, a teenager, probably 18 and 19, maybe. And I felt like I should change lanes right now. Maybe that's the Lord. Maybe this random thought I'm having is God telling me to change lanes. And like, maybe something bad will happen if I don't. And so like I changed lanes. Nothing happened. Okay, I'm, I'm being silly here, but I'm learning. Okay, I'm learning. This is part of my growing experience. Later, I'm driving down that same patch of road, and I think it again. It was the next day, maybe. Change lanes or something bad's going to happen. Maybe this is the Lord. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, I might be heading down into some really dangerous habits. I was mature enough, at least wise enough to think this. If I start thinking all my random fearful thoughts are the Lord leading me, I might do all kinds of weird things. That doesn't seem healthy. And so I so I stayed in my lane and I prayed. Out loud. I was like, Lord, I just don't think that you would guide me this way with fear and random paranoid thoughts. So if you're leading me, please lead me in a way that's more clear to me, that seems more consistent with not giving me a spirit of fear. And um, I'll stay in this lane. And if I get in a crash, then I'll know I was wrong. And so I stayed in the lane and nothing happened. And I feel like what happened was I was just overly thinking that the Holy Spirit had to lead me in all these little ways that would I would be able to tell stories about later and that um, that it would just be random thoughts coming to my mind and that that's kind of what the leading of the Holy Spirit looked like. And it was not healthy. And I'm really gl glad that I didn't head down that path. I would encourage you to not head down that path too. Pray for your family, but do not be hostage. Don't let your prayers be hostage to random fears. It's one thing to have a conviction from the Lord that I need, I'm going to pray for so-and-so. They need prayer right now. It's something else to just have your prayer life be dominated by random fears. And that's that's the thing I would encourage you to set, to set aside. When you have those things and you think, I, I don't think this is God leading me. I think it's just my OCD kind of random fear and ritual practices. Pray, but pray for something totally different just to break yourself from being in bondage to that stuff. Um, that's what I would think. Yeah. And we don't see that in scripture as an example either. Number 18, uh, Alexandria Karsig says, what do you tell an atheist who says he looked for God and God didn't reveal himself to him? And generally, what do you make of the argument of non-resistant non-believers? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm a little torn on it. Let me, I'll explain here. Um, on one end, I want to affirm a person's genuine and sincere. On the other end, I want to affirm that scripture tells me that men are without excuse. Romans 1, it says, you know, that God's attributes are clearly seen by creation. You can look around at creation and see his attributes. So people are without excuse if they don't believe in God. I believe that. How do I affirm the sincerity and genuineness of individuals at the same time be honest about the fact that they should believe in God? Well, I think I just affirm both. I go, look, I don't doubt your sincerity. I, I do, however, think that you should see God in creation. You genuinely don't. But that may be a result of a blindness that's on your heart. Now, that is very offensive to people. I realize that. A lot of uh, non-believers would be like, so, okay, so I'm, blind, I'm spiritually blind is what you're saying. Um, 
yes, there's yes, there's an aspect of your your awareness of the realities around you that is not right. Or of course, you think I'm blind too. You think I'm blind to how genuine and and sincere and um, non-blind you are. And so it's not like we're off to a different base. What's happening in this discussion though is we're moving the discussion away from God's actual existence onto a focus of the sincerity and the genuineness and the goodness of this person across from me who's like, I'm looking for God and I'm not seeing him. There are even people who go further and they're like, I want to know God. I want to believe in God. I'm looking and searching and searching. But there are other sources of blindness that are not always internal. They can be somewhat external as well. Um, and so what I mean here is um, a person can have a blindness like like the like the ketchup bottle thing. You open the fridge and you can't find it. It's right there, but I can't see it. Something's wrong with me. I don't see it. Um, that can be the case with my search for God. Um, I may have a blindness that I'm a bias, a blindness, wrong thinking. I keep running into the same evidence and I, I disbelieve it for a bad reason, but I don't see that as a bad reason. I think I'm just being clever and wise and smart. But there's also an external blindness. Satan has is a deceiver who deceives the world now deceiving the world implies that there's something external there that's bringing a blindness onto people's lives so but then does that mean that there are non-believers who are they they genuinely want god they just want to seek the lord with all their hearts and satan's blinding them and so they're there here's a here's better than a non-resistant non-believer they're actually pursuing god but they can't find him because satan's blocking it um, I think that the answer here biblically is those who seek him will find him. That at some point, God is going to reveal himself to them and they need to continue seeking him. Now, a, a non-Christian is not going to be satisfied with that, most likely. A lot of them anyways aren't. They're going to find it offensive. It shouldn't be offensive to them. Like, they believe people around the world are deceived about all kinds of things. There's nothing surprising about thinking that I can be deceived about something too. If there is a real God, if Christianity is true, it's at least encouraging to think that if I continue pursuing God, that I will find him. But there are biases that people have. And the same non-resistant non-believer goes, oh, I wish Christianity was true. And then they'll go, but the Bible is atrocious. And if God exists, he has some explaining to do. And you're like, well, these are biases against the thing that you say you're seeking. But I think my biases are well established. Of course you do. Everybody does. That's the nature of the kind of self-deception and biases that we we all can experience. So I I know this is really offensive to people. I get that. And I try to avoid that offense if possible. But it shouldn't actually be offensive. It's just an analysis of if Christianity is true, then your non-belief is not merely a result of the evidence. It's also a result of a spiritual battle that's going on, a result of your own biases against God and against truly following him. And one thing you can ask is, would you, if you came to believe right now that Christianity was true, would you worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Would you love God? Would you, would you embrace Christianity? Would you be able to sing worship songs to the Lord in, 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 because of his love and goodness? And if the answer is like, oh, well, I don't know, then you see that, yeah, so there's a bias that's there that's being revealed in that moment. At any rate, I, I, I think this is all more encouraging than a lot of people think it is because it would mean that if you do seek God, you can find him. Continue seeking the Lord. Continue seeking after God. Continue praying, Lord, you know, search my heart, God. See my biases. See my, my whatever I have going on, God. It may, maybe you have to pray this way. God, if you're real, because I just don't know what to think, 
then help me see through my own issues. Help me seek and find you. Help me work through these biases. Help open my eyes and keep pursuing and seeking God. But here's the weird thing. People are psychologically complex and we justify things so fast. It could be your only, I'm not saying this is the case, but it's possible, right? You guys, you guys know humans, you know you. It's possible you could pray that prayer purely as a way of justifying yourself. Well, I spent three months going to church, praying, worship, doing worship songs, and, and asking God to reveal himself to me. But maybe the reason why you did this was as a way of validating yourself, not as a way of pursuing God. We are just complicated people. All I can encourage people to do is keep seeking the Lord, pursue God. Don't just do it so you can tell a story to other people about how I'm a non-resistant non-believer. Look at my story about how I, and, and you know, maybe validating myself was my goal there. Um, God knows our hearts. Let's go to question number 19. Uh, Dislike Lever says, what does it mean to hear God's voice? Many teachings say to listen to your thoughts and discern God's voice. Is this even biblical or is it a cliche? It reminds me of imagination, um, vision slash prophecy. Yeah, there, there are those who talk about like a sanctified imagination. I really don't like that phrase at all. Um, not that everyone who's ever used it has been wrong every time. I just, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it should be in our, Dictionary, <laughs> sanctified imagination. Um, biblically speaking, do we typically have people, typically, this is important, have people going, oh, I think maybe God is showing me this? Not usually. Usually if God speaks to people, it's pretty obvious and clear. You know, they know God speaks to them. Um, when God speaks, it, it is rare that God individually speaks to people in the Old Testament. When he does, it's usually very clear. It's abundantly clear. They might just know something, not guess, not think maybe this, but rather they just know it. Um, or God actually audibly speaks to them. We, we read about that on, on numerous occasions. Could also be a dream, vision, um, various things. Uh, a prophet, God sent to speak to you, that kind of thing in the Old Testament. But it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. Um, creation speaks to people about God, but here creation is not an entity speaking. It's rather you're looking around and you see from what's made, there's a God. Th this is a learning process, not a divine um, speaking type thing. In the New Testament, we see a lot more of it, in particular in the New Testament, where God is apparently communicating to people a lot more frequently than we typically do in the Old Testament. And here we have things where Paul talks about word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy as being something anybody might do, um, that sort of thing. But we don't see here a, a rule or a test that I'm aware of in the, in the scriptures for how to tell if a thought is you or a thought is God. It just seems assumed that the people know when they've received it, they know that that was from the Lord and that wasn't themselves. So that's my standard. And that's the standard I encourage you to have. If you have a thought and you're like, I don't know if that's me or the Lord. Well, then assume it's you. Because nobody else who seems to have a word from God is like, maybe it's the Lord, maybe it's not. Rather, they have like, God definitely showed this to me. And maybe even though it's overwhelmingly strong evidence that it's God, they still have some doubts, but they're not like, I just suddenly thought of a friend I haven't heard or, or, you know, seen of for five years. Maybe God's showing me something about them. And then I'm writing a prophecy and I'm going to send it to him in a letter. Um, I think that this sort of lowering the bar of what I will say is the Lord 
is is unhealthy for churches to do. It will create an appearance of spiritual movement in a in a, in a local church or in, in a gathering in a home study, but it will also create potentially unstable Christians who follow their random thoughts, thinking that they're God. And then you have these groups always end up having rules like we only give prophecies that are positive. We only offer words that are encouraging because they they have to have a way of filtering the types of things people say because they've made people too sensitive to thinking, um, basically having false positives, thinking God's speaking to them when really they're just thinking of things. But let's say it is just you. You think of an old friend from five years ago. Does it have to be God showed you them or can you just think of them and go, I think I'll pray for them? Is that, I don't, do I, does it have to be the Holy Spirit led that moment or can I just... You know, you you see someone and they're serving God, and you think, "Boy, man, I, I I really hope God uses them powerfully." I don't have to be like, "God is showing me He'll use you powerfully." Why? Because because I maybe He is, maybe. How about I just go? I'm praying that God uses you powerfully. I'm so encouraged to see the ministry you're doing. Uh, may God may God glorify Himself in your life and use you powerfully. Like, why do I have to turn it into I'm I'm a conduit for the spiritual? Um, I don't have to do that. So. What does it mean to hear God's voice? Uh, all I'll say is this. In scripture, it seems like it's pretty clear when they hear God's voice. And in a lot of charismatic circles, it's pretty unclear to the point where they're like, well, I just go up and say, maybe this is the Lord, maybe not. As long as I say maybe, then I can say anything I want after that. Um, and uh, that can be unhealthy. I don't want to muzzle people from speaking and sharing something God showed them, but I, nor do I want to cause all these false triggers. I want to find that that happy middle ground that scripture seems to be inhabiting um, in the New Testament. And I want to I want to be there as well. All right. Number 20. Last question. John John says, why does God change the name of Abram to Abraham, Saul to Paul and Sarah to Sarai to Sarah? Is there a meaning behind this? Well, OK, each is each is a different situation. So Abram to Abraham, father of many. That this is this is this is why his name is changed. Um, uh, Sarah to Sarah, Sarai to Sarah. Same thing that the actual change of the name uh, has to do with the calling God has put on their lives. Saul to Paul is different. Saul, prob- God did probably did not change Saul's name to Paul. Saul was a man who had the Jewish experience, and he also had the. Roman experience, the Greek experience, um, he would have been in very Jewish circles in some on some occasions and in very Greek speaking Roman circles on other occasions. And like many people, like I, I've had Korean friends, I had a Korean friend who I can never say his name right. He went by John, uh, but his name was Kyung, and I still can't say it right because there's certain inflections that I just could never get down. And he was like, just call me John. Um, Saul, his actual name, he was like Shaul, right? But something like that, but... But um, his Roman name, he's like, hey, just call me Paul. Because it was easier for those people, for the Greek speakers. So really, he's just got, uh, like a lot of people back then, he has a Greek name and he has a Hebrew name. Most likely that's all that's going on with Saul to Paul. Um, not a name change there, just a different a different way of talking because when he, depending on what culture he's in. So we, we get this a lot. Um, I've, I've had people who call me uh miguel because they're, they're spanish speakers so, so they just refer to me as miguel without even thinking about it and i you wouldn't be like why did god change mike's name from mike to miguel it's like well it's just different cultures so yeah um we often will talk about how saul 
he was Saul and then he became Paul. And like, I think this is just a mistake. We're just confused because it happened in some cases, like with Abraham, we think maybe it happened with Paul as well. I, I think that's just a mistake. Don't, don't throw stones at someone who makes that mistake. It's an understandable one, but good to get clear on those types of issues. So I hope today has helped you guys. Um, I really do help, hope it helps you to think biblically about things. As you know, I do not have all the answers. I hope I at least have some of the answers for you and give you some encouragement, some refocusing on the Lord. Maybe you need that today to remember that you are part of a kingdom that is not of this world, that God has called you to be sanctified, to be on a mission, to serve him and know him and love him, not just to say, here's me and I'm a Christian, but to make Jesus like your life. Like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to remember that you're part of this radical life-changing kingdom of God that has eternal joys ahead of you. And for now, temporary suffering and a mission to serve the Lord with your life. I hope that you learn to think biblically about that. Let's pray. Um, Lord God, we are so grateful for the calling you've placed. Uh, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, Lord, that the, the power is from you and the glorious work that happens in our lives is all from you. We are just, um, we're just clay, but we pray that you would fill us with yourself, use us for your glory, set our hearts and minds upon Christ. Let us be all about your kingdom and seeking you and let us remember our first love. We ask, Lord, that we would be a people who are grounded and solid on the cornerstone who are on fire lights of the world for Jesus Christ and who know who know that this world is passing and our savior is forever in Jesus name amen